Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Anna. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles Podcast. I am really excited for you guys to listen to today's episode. This is a conversation between myself and Tina Payne Bryson. She is a best-selling author and just had a new book published called The Bottom Line for Baby. And this is fast becoming one of my favorite books to recommend to new parents, as well as to recommend to NICU parents while they are getting ready to bring their baby home. Essentially, this is an A through Z guide of very short, easy to digest snippets from everything from baby led weaning to ear piercings to introducing solid foods organic clothing, cloth or or disposable diapers, sleep training, car seats, tummy time, thumb sucking. And in this book, she gives the two opposing positions. So let me just go to flip open the book to one page. So we're going to do breastfeeding versus formula feeding. This could not be more perfect um, as it is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, And we actually talk about it in this episode. So competing opinions. She gives perspective number one and perspective number two. And then she lists out what the science says and then gives a bottom line. Um, On some of the chapters, she has a personal note where either she did something different or something similar to what the science says, because let's be honest, not all of us as parents do exactly what the science says, but we all want to know about what the science is. And so we're really going to talk about her book and how this book can be helpful. We dive into mommy wars and why we're all, why we all need to be less judgmental and allow people to make decisions for themselves, as well as talking a little bit about how to deal with extended family and neighbors across the street who all have an opinion about what and how we should be doing for our baby. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation uh, and listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. As always, please rate us and leave a review if you are finding this podcast to be helpful so that other people can find it as well. I really do appreciate it. And with that, we will jump right in to the conversation between Dr. Tina Payne Bryson and myself. And it is the book that I have always wanted. And it's just (laughs) so practical, right? Like, I just love it because you lay out the science. And I think I think it's just so practical because people have such strong opinions about what you should and shouldn't do during for parenting and related to every yep. single controversial topic. And your book really lays out, this is opinion one, and this is opinion two, and here's the science I found, and, and here's what we know and what we don't know. And for a lot of it, there's a lot of stuff we don't know or a lot of stuff that's really very black and white. And I think people want concrete answers and they don't want this kind of gray zone. Um, But I was surprised when I was reading through it, how much stuff had really good data for both sides. I know. Yeah. I think that was one of the things that was so interesting to me, I think in, you know, my other books, the books I've written with Jan Siegel, like the whole brain child and no drama discipline and, and power of showing up. Those books are really fun to write. It's fun to write with Dan, but it's also 
it's not controversial. It's basically like, love your kids. You know, like it's not, you know, and our books are together are based on tens of thousands of scientific references. But this book was very different because I had to read all these articles on all of these topics that some were interesting and some weren't. But what I found really, really interesting was that there are a lot of assumptions that people make that we're kind of told or we believe in our culture as fact or the one way, but there's not even that good, much good science behind it. And then there are other things, like you said, where like the circumcision one um, is one of those areas where there's really good science on both sides. And what I found fascinating was part of my process for this book is after really digging into the literature, I would, who were the like main authors of these research papers? Who were the main experts in the world? And I would send my entry to these people and I would say, hey, is there anything I'm missing? How would you, you know, and I would try to get feedback. Not everybody responded, but the two leading experts in the world on circumcision both said some version of there is no debate. The debate is over. The answer is clear, but they were on opposite sides. So, you know, that was really interesting to me. And then there are all kinds of things that maybe parents, like you said, may not know that there's some really concrete black and white things that we should know about. For instance, um, having the sound machines in our baby's rooms, we may not think about how loud, how many decibels that machine is making and, and how much noise is, you know, is coming into their baby's ears and how that really might be something we should pay attention to. I think overall the message in the book, um, I know it sounded when I talk about the sound there that I'm saying, here's more things to worry about, but I really, feel like and the feedback I've gotten and really what my one of my goals for this book was it will not only help you ward off um, advice you aren't soliciting or you know family members who are giving you opinions that are outdated like you can be like oh read the entry on germs it really is okay to lick my baby's pacifier clean you know right. <laughs> it'll lower their rate of eczema and allergy right so I think it will be that but I, I really my hope and goal for this was that parents could not only feel more confident in their decisions but also as they read that they can feel like, gosh, there's not, I don't have to worry about as many things as I thought I had to worry about. And I can really trust myself and I can really trust my baby and do what works for my family. And, you know, it, it feels so important when we're making those decisions. And of course the decisions we make matter, but at the time, the first time around, especially when we're making these decisions about whether or not we start with fruits or vegetables first when we're feeding them, it's not, it doesn't really matter. It, that, though, there are a lot of things that feel like they're the most important decisions in the moment. And in terms of the outcomes, it's, you can go either way and it really is okay. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I try to tell parents as they're leaving the NICU is you know your baby and you know your family. And so everybody on the planet has parenting advice and and that's true in the NICU as well right because that's the world I live in and so then one nurse will say oh well you should do it this way and another nurse will say oh you should do it this way and both nurses are right and sometimes parents get frustrated because they're getting mixed messages and the same is true for your two best friends who are telling you well you have to offer a bottle or your baby will never be able to eat from somebody else and the other friend saying, no, you cannot offer a bottle. Your baby will never breastfeed again and will totally have nipple confusion. But the reality is, eh, you know, probably it's okay to offer a bottle for 99% of babies. And some dads want a chance to feed their kid. And 
This is not the end of the world, even though it feels so much like the most important decision you're making on the planet. But ultimately, you know your baby and you know your family and you have to trust in your instincts and what you strongly believe as a parent. That matters. Yes, having the data is good. And this book offers that data, which I love. But ultimately, it's your baby and it's your family and you will make the best decision for your family. That's right. And I think, you know, it's I'm so glad you said that about about what the book does, because, you know, this is the this is the first book I longed for as a parent. I'm a kind of person um, where I really like information. Having information makes me feel more secure. I'm a, you know, I like to be really intentional about my decisions, but everything I read and everyone I talked to was in contrast with each other. And then I felt really paralyzed in terms of making the decision. And so um, I always wanted this kind of a book. And I think because it's alphabetical, it's so accessible for whatever topic you're, you know, you're wanting to find. but I'm really glad like people have asked me, you know, my youngest is now 14. My boys are 14, 17 and 20. And people are like, why are you writing a book about babies now? And I said, actually, I'm so it's better. I think it's better that I waited until now. First of all, I don't have to get caught up in all of the mommy wars, which I wish were called parent wars kind of thing and, and not take it personally if I feel criticized if someone's coming after me because I said, it's okay to give your baby a pacifier or something like that, that someone gets really offended about Um, because this book is full of the controversial topics. That's what it's trying to do is weigh the different arguments and then say, what is the, how does the science contribute to this conversation? But I think having not being in the trenches on all of that and seeing my kids and how they've grown up and seeing my friends, kids who parented really maybe even differently, who made really different kinds of decisions that I made and their kids are awesome. And my kids are awesome. I have a perspective now to say, here's what, what really matters. And especially because I've studied all of this other science to say what matters most is that we tune into our children. We show up for them when they have needs quickly and sensitively most of the time. And that when we mess up, we make a repair. That's really the bottom line of the bottom line. And that even the big decisions, the big controversial ones like sleep training and co-sleeping and breastfeeding, like those, you know, those are bigger questions that have a lot more controversy. The truth is, regardless of what you decide on any of those even controversial things, it doesn't have a huge impact on your child's character, um, how much how um, how much empathy they can show to their friends, like the things that are really are the outcomes that we really care about. Um, the, the key is trusting yourself, like you said, um, feeling confident that you are the expert, even if you don't feel like it. And we all have that experience when they hand us our baby, whether it's an adopted baby or one we've just birthed, and they're like, you mean I can take it home? Like, what am I supposed to do with it? You know, you're like, yeah. you don't feel like I shouldn't, they shouldn't let me leave with this thing, you know? But I think, you know, that's what really those early weeks and months are so much about is about finding your rhythm with your baby. And I know, you know, when you have a baby in the NICU, your rhythm is different when your baby is in the hospital and then you have a different rhythm once you get home. And so those rhythms happen and you figure it out, but it's really about learning who your baby is and, you know, and learning who you are as a parent. I think a lot of parents, um, I was telling my friend the other day who had um, twins who were in the NICU, 
we were talking about how so many of us had a birth plan our first time around. And we were like, this is how it's going to go. And almost everybody I know, their birth did not go the way they had scripted it. And sometimes it's more traumatic. Sometimes it's before it's time, or sometimes there's an emergency, you know, C-section or, or there are issues that, that make our children medically vulnerable um, or make us medically vulnerable. But whether it's that all the way to, well, I didn't want a C-section or I didn't want an episiotomy or I couldn't get my, you know, my um, playlist to play the way I wanted to, or I actually had a really funny, I had brought um, like lemon drops to suck on during labor and my husband opened the bag and they went all over the floor like marbles. Like, you know, there were those kinds of moments too that are just not important, but still not really how you plan it. And we were talking about how that's actually such an appropriate way to begin parenting because it's that very first lesson in even though you think you're going to be in control of things you truly can't control another human being and the parenting journey is a journey we take together with our children and each of our children are different and we are different with each of our children and so it's this beginning humility kind of parenting lesson to say get ready. Things are going to happen that you're ready for and things are going to happen you're not ready for. And it's all part of it. And it's, it's all part of the, you know, um, what is it? Glennon Doyle's word, brutal, you know, brutal and beautiful together. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because I always tell parents when they come into the NICU, I'm like, congratulations on your baby. You know, I know you're in the NICU and it's not what you planned on, but this is your first experience experience in parenting and realizing that you have no control over your life anymore. And it's true because <laughs> you cannot control another person. And it's also interesting that you use the term rhythm and finding the rhythm with your baby, because I always tell parents, particularly when we're first with first-time breastfeeding moms where there's a lot of nervousness about, am I doing it right? Is he getting enough? It kind of hurts. Should it hurt this much? Everybody says it hurts. Right. You know, is my milk in? Is my milk not in? Right? Like, it's kind of like learning to dance. You come up with, you know, everybody's got the mommy sway, right? Like, anytime you're holding a baby, you and your baby have the sway, but you have to figure out your sway together. And it is different for every single child. So it's it's interesting that you use some of those same type of metaphors in terms of rhythm and learning how to dance and losing control because I haven't ever thought about it in terms of you can't control another human, but that is exactly what it is. That baby now has its own agenda, its own life, and you have to figure out how to marry your rhythm to their rhythm. You, you can't control their rhythm. No, and any of you who are listening who know who have ever tried to make your child go to the bathroom, fall asleep, or eat, you realize you just can't make that happen. And I think too, you know, every kid is so unique. And so it's really about finding the rhythm with that child at that point in their development. And even, you know, children have sensory preference preferences, even from the very moment they're born, um, probably even in utero. Um, you know, my firstborn was really sensitive to noise and to having a lot of people in the room. And my second born couldn't get enough. And my third one was right in the middle. You know, they're all just a little bit different in terms of what, how their nervous system responds to different stimuli. And um, I think that's, again, something we can really feel good about as parents is when we tune in and we observe our children with curiosity, as opposed to kind of saying, we're doing it this way. 
Um, that is how we find our way together and how we really become the expert on our children. And I think that's why the bottom line for baby two was so important to me is to really, as, as parents and particularly as moms, um, we second guess ourselves a lot because it matters so much. We really want to do the best job. And of course, all parents want that, not just moms. But I think as moms, we kind of second guess ourselves. And more than that, we kind of can beat ourselves up and be really hypercritical of ourselves. And that's where also some of the, the controversy comes in too, is that you know what I try to remind myself um, is that when a parent comes at me or someone I'm talking to and they're telling this to me about you have to do it this way and if you don't do it this way you're not a good parent you know how could you ever consider not breastfeeding you know and by the way I'm pro breastfeeding I think I nursed for a long time with all three of my kids um, but it doesn't work for everybody for some parents they spend so much time trying to increase milk supply that they are not spending time engaged with their child in joyful ways. And so for that parent, they might be a quote unquote better parent by not breastfeeding. So this is why we shouldn't judge each other. And this is why when a parent comes at us by saying, how could you ever do it this way? Or how could you, you know, ever consider doing, you know, not sleep training your child, or how could you ever consider sleep training your, you know, whatever it is. Um, to say that that parent is really invested in their agenda because there's something about if a parent does it a different way, it makes them feel like they are not as good of a parent or they're not getting reinforced for the decision they made. And I have strong feelings and opinions about a lot of these topics. And sometimes the science didn't back up what I thought or what I did. Um, and so I really tried to keep things objective, which is why in some of the entries I have a, a note from me, which is sort of that's where I weigh in. Um, but to really just say, you know, there are so many ways to be a great parent. And so we don't need to judge each other, um, whether or not you decide to do something different from the friend who has a baby two doors down, those don't determine whether or not you're a great parent often. And so, um, having that confidence and saying, I'm going to, I know the knowledge, I'm going to be the expert on my baby. And it's so important to do what works well for our families. In fact, even if you, you, it's impossible to follow the scientific recommendations on all of these topics. Like one, um, one recommendation is make sure you get really good sleep. <laughs> Funny, but the other recommendation is your baby needs to be fed on demand in those early months, right? Um, so that means in the middle of the night too. So those, those recommendations are mutually exclusive. So that's the other thing too, is just saying, there are, there are a few things that are really clear in terms of there's a right way and a wrong way to parent, like watching your child when they're in water, you know, near water. Yeah. There's um, no, no way you cannot do that. Yeah. Putting them in the car seat. Like there are some things, but those are typically around survival safety kinds of things. Besides that, there's a lot of room to do what works well for your family and your baby. And I just hope that parents will 
feel empowered with that. And I think the whole idea of having it be a right way to do something or a wrong way to do something, you know, I love um, teaching babies um, some version of baby sign or sign language because I was able to communicate with my boys way before they had the motor development to say words. They could signal motorcycle or helicopter. They could tell me when they were in pain. They could tell me when they wanted to be comforted using, you know, the sign language we had taught. And I love that. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And if another parent is like, I'm too overwhelmed, that's not for me. That doesn't mean they're not a great parent. It just, it means that they're making decisions that work better for their family. And that's what makes a great parent. Right. Is well, really, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that you brought up a couple of the examples you brought up. So I'm a neonatologist. We talk about breastfeeding all the time. We talk about how breast is best. We, I'm a huge advocate for breastfeeding. Um, but I've had a couple instances in my life where just because I'm a huge advocate for breastfeeding doesn't mean I'm not empathetic to the fact that one, it can be really difficult to get breastfeeding started. And I had some lactation consultants get really mad at me when I was giving a a talk because I said breastfeeding is not always easy. You know, we have this view that babies are just going to climb up our abdomen and latch on and it's going to be this beautiful, magical experience. And if it is fantastic, wonderful, how lucky for you. But if it isn't, that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. Sometimes it takes a lot of work. And I'm a neonatologist who has Poland syndrome, who had a postpartum hemorrhage, who tried desperately to breastfeed my first baby. And I pumped every two hours and I never made milk. It just didn't happen. And it was devastating. And it was causing problems in my ability to interact with my child because I felt guilty every time I fed my kid. And by giving up breastfeeding, I became a better parent, even as a neonatologist who knows what all the benefits are. But that doesn't mean that my child doesn't still get benefits and even more benefits from me being a good mom, that is more beneficial than any amount of breast milk is. To have a mom that's present and shows up, who's feeding her baby and is confident in who she is, is much better than having a mom trying to breastfeed and failing and having it go down a path that's just not good for anybody. So one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading your book is how difficult it is to have conversations with family members who are going to be who who are going to be helping us with our children or who have really strong opinions. So I had a mom in the hospital, this was actually just yesterday, tell me that her mom was coming to stay with them for the first 8 weeks and I said, "Oh, is that a good thing or a bad thing?" right? Like I'm I'm not going to say if it's good or bad. I'm just going to ask you. And it opened up the window for her to say, "I'm really worried about my mom coming because If I tell her something that I want to do that's different than what she did with me, she's going to feel like I'm criticizing her. And so how can people, how can parents have these conversations or how can your book be useful to parents having these conversations to say, look, mom or dad or grandma or daycare provider down the street who's been doing this for 30 years, I know you typically do it this way but this is what we're thinking. What questions do you have for me without the person feeling like you are judging them or telling them that they did it wrong? Yeah. Oh, that's such a tricky one. And I have an, I have a suggestion, 
first of all, that's actually one of the benefits I think of this book um, is, and I would say like parents should put it, if, if you're having a hospital birth, put it in your go bag because you're going to have to make decisions in the hospital. You don't know you're going to have to make like whether or not your baby should get a bath at the hospital, you know, and this will help you make those decisions. But I think to be able to say, Hey, I just read this. This is so interesting. And you just begin the conversation like that. Like, gosh, things have really changed and the science is changing all the time. And so I really want to be up on this and, and that kind of thing. But eight weeks is a long time. I'll just say that's a really, really <laughs> long time. It's a really long time. Um, my mom was so amazing. She came for the first two weeks um, and I was really isolated. We were living in rural Texas at the time and we didn't know anyone. Um, and when she left, I was like, don't leave me. You know, I felt like I was getting dropped off at daycare for the first time at age two or something. Um, but, um, my mom was amazing in that. She said, she's like, I love that baby already. And I want to be everything to that baby. And I know my job is to take care of you and make things easy for you so that you can do your thing with your baby. And I'm just, here's the backup person. So I think just that was really helpful. Um, but when parents, when parents get input from people who are going to take it personally, particularly, um, one of my favorite ways to give a response is to start with what I talk about in, with Dan in the whole brain child connect and redirect to start with connection and to say, I love that you love our baby so much. I love that you, you know, want the best for this baby. And thank you so much for, you know, helping us be intentional in the decisions we're making. So start with connection and gratitude and then say, I've read a lot about this or I've been studying this and this is the decision we've made. Um, and, and you just say it confidently. You just say, I love that you have input and we've, this is the decision we've made. And I think even, you may even have at some point to say, and we're not, at this point, we're not changing our mind. I mean, that's, I use that boundary with my, when my kids were little, I would say, I'm not changing my mind about this. And then the, the battles would typically stop. Um, so I think that idea of starting with connection, then saying, this is the decision we've made. Um, another thing that can be a helpful thing to put in, and you know, obviously we want it to be authentic and true, but to, to really say to our parents or anyone else to say, you know, what I've been learning about that's so fascinating is that every baby is so different. And so, you know, some of the decisions you made for me and the way you parented me, like those were great for me. Um, and I'm going to see what my baby needs. So I think that's another way to make it less personal is to have it really be more about the individual. Yeah, more about the baby and less about the yeah. caregiver. Letting our, letting our parents off the hook and saying, you know, gosh, there's so much we know now that you guys, you guys didn't have the benefit of that. And that meant, you know, you guys had to, you know, make more decisions on instinct. And I think a lot of parents are trying to do that even more now, like we're trying to get back to that in some ways, but to say, it's great that the information keeps changing. And I wonder now, and this is where you bring in some humility. I wonder about the things we're going to do now that our kids are going to say, oh, actually we know better now, you know? So I think there can be some humility there too. Well, and I think that things are changing too, right? Because how you parented in the seventies with bikes and Atari is different than how you parented in the 80s with you know scooters and new Nintendo games is totally different from how you parent now with Facebook and social media and all of those external pressures and you just can't necessarily compare the parent the parenting right like it's it, it is just different you have right. to change what you do depending on the time that, that you're in how do you I think that's right you know I 
Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, there's just some topics in here that weren't things that were even things when I had kids 20 years ago and, and, thir- and 14, 14 years ago. You know, baby led weaning is That's the exact I, one I was just thinking of. Baby yeah, led weaning is I, brand know, new. Thought, and even like screen time. And do you give your child a digital footprint or not? These weren't really questions I was faced with. And so that's the other thing, too, is just that the, the world is different. Do you have any recommendations for parents that are really on different pages when it comes to certain parenting topics? And I think probably some of the big ones that come to mind are approach to discipline in terms of like authoritarian versus much more of a relaxed type of parenting style, Um, spanking and access to the internet. Not every parent is going to be on the same page. And even within a relationship, parenting can be stressful for that relationship. So how can we try to get on the same page with some of those bigger topics that are so difficult? Yeah. So, you know, in my work as a mental health um, provider, I've done a lot of parenting consultations and a lot of work in that space. And I don't think I've ever had a couple that was 100% on the same page. And I want to start by saying, I think that's actually a good thing. We want to maybe think about being in the same book, right? You don't have to be on the same page or even the same chapter. And actually kids benefit when their parents think differently and, and operate differently. Like I'll give an example. My husband and I, we've been married for, shoot, am I going to forget? 26 or 27 years. I tend to be more risk averse and he tends to be way less risk averse. So this is the way our kids benefit from that is if they, if we were both risk averse, we'd be like, careful, careful, careful all the time. And that's, that wouldn't be great for our kids. Or we'd both be too loosey goosey and not think through safety things. So kids really benefit when there are differences of opinions. And if parents can respectfully listen and come to a decision together, I think kids really get the benefit of that. Another way kids benefit when parents have different approaches to things is that it requires great um, cognitive load and a lot of prefrontal cortex practice when kids learn that their parents are different on things. Like my kids knew you know, I was going to be a little bit more um, lenient around um, junk food than my husband was. And I, and I was going to be stricter around bedtime than my husband was, whatever, right? So they kind of were like, ooh, which parent should I go to to talk to? That's actually, I know it sounds manipulative, but it's really such important practice for how do you navigate things in the world with people who think differently than you do and who think differently from each other? I mean, those are such important skills in all relationships and business, all of that. And they also learn a few natural consequences from that too, right? So when the parent who's not strict on bedtime allows them to go to bed whenever they want, they're going to be really tired the next day and, and they can have some natural consequences or the parent that's not as strict on junk food lets them eat 20 candy bars. I'm not saying you did that, but on Halloween night, they're going to have an upset stomach. So they learn a little bit of natural consequences without really getting too much down one pathway. And because of that, that helps them learn to understand themselves and where their limits are and all of that. So those are really important things. I wish I could get all parents to think about, I think really most of what we're talking about here are around boundary setting kinds of things. Um, Most parents don't have a discipline philosophy at all. They do the fly by the seat of the pants discipline philosophy, which is whatever I feel internally and however reactive I am, that's what I'm going to do in the moment. Um, 
it's really helpful for parents to, and we talk about this in No Drama Discipline, but there's also an entry in here in the bottom line for baby, giving kind of an idea about how we think about what kinds of disciplinarians we wanna be. And I, first of all, start by defining the word discipline as teaching and skill building so that our children become self-disciplined people, which means if we're being effective disciplinarians, we're having to discipline less over time because our kids have the skills to regulate themselves. But what I really wish parents would do is first of all, get clear on what are their goals and how do they think about discipline? Is it more, is one parent more punitive minded? Is one more teaching minded? Um, and I think it's really helpful to do that when you're not in the situation. The second thing is, I really wish I could get all parents to think about how discipline really is about teaching in the moment. And there are so many assumptions about discipline that are wrong, just based on old, old science, like you have to discipline right then and there in that moment, or they won't learn. That's just not true. That's based on animal research from the 50s. Even a two-year-old, you can wait. And after they've had their nap and snack to say, let's tell the story of when you threw your shoe at mommy's face. And you, know, you can go back and, and, and address the behavior then. I want parents to give their kids throughout development opportunities around that boundary setting for the kid to be involved in the cognitive load so that they are exercising their own brain and practicing building those skills. Like for instance, um, and this is with teenagers, but you know, to say, hey, I'm noticing what time it is. Um, I know you know how important it is to get a good night's sleep. What's your plan? Instead of saying, it's nine o'clock, go to bed, or it's 7.30, go to bed, whatever. Um, and same thing with like, gosh, your friend really wants this shovel and you really want this shovel. I wonder what we should do. And instead of the parents being so top down to really give their kids opportunity, it's not about being permissive, you're still setting boundaries, but really giving kids exercise and using their prefrontal cortex. So finally, to your question though, I think what's so important is to get clear when one of the parents or both parents feel really reactive about what's underneath that reactivity. My husband and I were, um, in kind of a, a standstill where we couldn't make progress on this big decision about our son um, and a car at 16. And we had already worked together to come up with a plan that he was gonna save money and earn money and that we would match it. So it would be a, a match for whatever he had earned. And then whatever he ended up with was how much money he had to spend on the car. Well, when it came time to make that decision, um, he didn't have a whole lot of money and I was hell bent on him having safety features on whatever car he was going to have. I wanted a backup camera, you know, and these kinds of things. So I wanted to spend like 2000 more to get those safety features. And my husband was like, no. And when we just were really like, we couldn't make progress on the decision. And ultimately my husband was really bright. He's in this moment. He said, he said, what is your, what is, what is this about for you? Like, why does this matter so much? And I, I really, like, I still feel the emotion coming up. I was like, I want him to be safe. I'm scared about him driving. And if you can really get to the core of what's keeping you in a really rigid spot, then it would be like, oh, this is about, you know, you're, you're really feeling afraid. Let's talk about that. And then let's make intentional decisions about that as well. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I mean, there's always an emotion under the reaction. And oftentimes when kids or babies or toddlers or older kids are triggering some sort of big response from a parent, it's not necessarily the behavior that's the trigger all the time. Sometimes it's whatever the emotion that it brings up in you because of something totally unrelated to what they're doing but you can't get to the bottom of it until you identify in yourself, hey, what, what is this really about? 
I think too, one of the things I really love to talk about is as parents, we're going to mess up all the time. And as parents, we're also going to find ourselves acting like crazy people. Like there will be times as parents, you know, where I'll act a certain way and I'll be so immature about something, or I'll be really reactive about something or really impatient. And when we do that as parents, it actually, instead of going into the shame spiral, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible parent, my kids are never gonna love me. And instead of that, because that actually makes us more vulnerable to having more reactivity because shame can really impact our neurophysiology and it can really impact being present and engaged and having shared moments of joy with our kids, which is one of the most important things we can do is to delight in our kids and have these shared moments of joy. When those moments happen, I really work to say, to first of all, be curious and say, okay, I'm gonna be curious about this. I was not the parent I wanted to be in that moment. What is that about for me? And when we do that, it allows us to be curious, which allows us to keep our prefrontal cortex engaged instead of being more reactive like a reptile. And we can then say, okay, what was that about for me? And what got in the way of me being the parent I wanted to be in that moment? And sometimes the answer is as simple as my baby's been crying for three hours. No one has let me pee by myself for three weeks and I'm starving and exhausted. And that's the answer. And then you go, okay, I need, I need a little support here, right? Other times you say, gosh, it seems like when my kid rejects me, like I know it's developmentally appropriate for my kid to prefer my, the other parent for periods of time instead of me or whatever. I know that's developmentally appropriate. Um, appropriate. I know it's not personal, but it feels awful to me in a way that makes me really get reactive. What's that about? And to really explore, gosh, when my kid rejects me, I respond in a way that doesn't quite make sense to me. What's that about? And, and I think, you know, what the power of showing up was about is about 50 years of cross-cultural research that shows one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out is that they have secure attachment with at least one person. And by the way, just in case anyone's confused, that research body is totally different from attachment parenting. I'm not talking about attachment parenting. Um, I'm talking about what mammals do, which is when we have a need and we're very vulnerable as infants, as humans, um, we need to be close to our primary caregivers so that they can tune in and meet our needs to help us survive. That's what I'm talking about. Um, and that really, in order to um, really tune into our kids and be able to do that, we, you know, we can, we can, really provide them with sensitive care and all of that. But the number one predictor for how well we're able to provide our babies with that kind of secure attachment is um, not whether or not we had parents who did that with us, which is great because about 40% of people had a pattern of insecure attachment with their parents where their parents either didn't show up for them emotionally or their parents were really confusing and inconsistent and unpredictable and unreliable or worse, their parents were the source of their terror instead of being the safe haven when things were afraid. Um, but the best predictor for how well we're, we're able to provide secure attachment to our kids is that we reflected on our experiences and made sense of them. So that is such an important part of, maybe one of the most important parts of this parenting journey is that self-reflection. And so when we have moments of ruptures and we make mistakes, that should be a time of invitation for us to reflect and look inward and say, what is it I need right now? And what's that about for me? Yeah. So when we're talking about secure attachment with infants and parents, would you like to weigh yep. in on um, an appropriate length of time that would be ideal to stay at home with your baby if you were able to do that? Um, is there is there a window or or is is there not a window, right? Like it 
it's okay. It doesn't matter if you have a nanny or you go to daycare or you leave baby with grandma starting at six weeks versus 12 weeks versus six months versus 12 years for that attachment to happen. Because I know a lot of people have to go back to work and we don't have the best laws in place. This is my personal opinion. We don't have the best laws in place in the United States to protect moms for being able to stay home for longer periods of time. And society really... Mm -hmm has driven more towards two working parents to have a living wage and that has made it more difficult as well. So where does your research play out in terms of what that attachment looks like and how it's impacted by going back to work or not? Yeah. So there were, there are a couple of entries on this in the bottom line for baby. And I'll just say overall, you know, back to what we were talking about, about finding that rhythm. And particularly if you are breastfeeding, um, which is wonderful if you are and fine if you're not, um, that that's such an important time to really, even having your milk be responsive to your child's demands, you know, all of those things, is, it's such, we're, we have this illusion that we are completely separate beings, but we're not. We're, even if it's not parent-child, our brains are, such social organs and we have these mirror neurons and we are held captive to one another's nervous systems, but particularly between parent and child, really um, even our cortisol levels are, t- if you're in tune with your baby, your cortisol levels are, um, are really in sync with your babies. So when your baby's stressed out, you are stressed out and not because you share their feelings, but because of a whole neurophysiological experience that's happening, um, which is why it's even funny when we talk about instincts, it's really something much more um, complex that involves all of our systems. But to um, go to your specific question, I think, you know, when parents can stay home and want to stay home for longer periods of time, it really allows us to get that rhythm and that that symbiotic relationship going. What the research really said is the number one most important thing, regardless of what you do, is the quality of care. So if that, if, if staying home with your baby is, is really not for you, or you have, um, if you have a really short fuse or you have medical issues or you just are not enjoying it. Um, and someone would be delighting in your baby for other hours of the day, that might be a better solution. Um, what the research was really clear about is that for families who are low income with lower resources and um, lower um, amounts of financial and economic stress, that um, going into childcare um, is probably be- more beneficial, but for higher income parents who have the resources and support, um, staying home in the early years is probably better for babies. So it depends on you know individual factors. I think it's such an individual thing. Like I didn't, I was home full time, stay at home mom until my youngest went to kindergarten with some part-time work on the side. I mean, I was working on a PhD at times, I was teaching some parenting classes and my husband would keep them when I was gone or my mom would, who's also an attachment figure. We have to remember that that was my, that was what was important to me. Um, We have to remember that babies can have many attachment figures. It's not, so even if you hire a nanny or the childcare worker is caring for your baby, that does not mean your baby will not attach to you. You are still the primary caregiver and providing attuned, sensitive care repeatedly and for long periods of time in the evenings, on the weekends, all of those things facilitate attachment. So it's very individual. I would say um, if you have the luxury 
at least six months. I mean, I'm just sort of making up that number, but I think that's an important, I think six weeks for most people is not long enough to get those rhythms in place, to be rested enough and recovered enough. Um, I, think, I think six weeks is too soon if we're gonna be talking about optimal options, not just for babies, because babies, if they're cared for with quality, they'll be fine, but really even just for the parents. Yeah. No. What do you say about that? Yeah, you know, I went back um, at seven, seven, seven and a half weeks. Um, and for me, it was too early. I mean, it, it was really, really hard. And I would have preferred to stay home for longer, but that's just not how things worked out. And And I wish that people had the option, that jobs would give women the option to stay out for longer, whether that's paid or unpaid or a combination of paid and unpaid. And it really depends on what that work situation is. And um, yeah. for me, when I have partners that are taking call and taking care of babies, it's it's really onerous to be down a dock and everybody has to then do more. But in hindsight, I really wish that I would have just put my foot down and said, this is not good for me. It, it wasn't good for my mental health. I needed more time. Um, and I, I, I would like to advocate for people to take as much time as possible um, yeah. because I wish I had had more time. And everything turned out fine. My husband stayed at home with the kids from eight to 12 weeks. And so, you know, they had me for the first eight weeks and then my husband until 12 weeks. And then we had, you know, some part-time help and, you know, we, we made it work. Um, but for me personally, I think my mental health would have been better if I had been able to stay home for longer. It just wasn't in the cards at that moment in time. So, yeah. And that's why we can tell parents, you know, I mean, again, that's back to that you not controlling everything and, and sometimes having to grieve our, that our plan didn't go the way we wanted, but I think um, just giving yourself, you know, the the time and, and space to recover, to recuperate, to you know, there's a lot of all the hormonal changes. But again, just finding that rhythm with your baby, it just it depends on the family. But yeah, as much time as you can and want to, right. take it, even if that's years. Right? Yeah. Well, and I was yeah. gonna say I have some friends that went back at six weeks because they wanted to go back. They they were ready to go back at six weeks. And so everybody's a little different. And you don't necessarily know where you're going to fall on that spectrum of how much time you want until you're you're actually there. And this becomes a huge issue for parents in the NICU because they have to take part of their leave while their child's in the NICU. But that's different yeah. than when their child actually comes home. And so I have a lot of moms who end up doing kind of split maternity leaves where they take few weeks off after delivery to physically recover and then they go back to work while their child's in the NICU to then save time once baby comes home and oh, so it can be really really difficult to piecemeal all of that together so but again I mean for me you wrote the book bottom line for babies and for me as a as a parent and a NICU doc my bottom line is that it's your baby and it's your life and it's your family and you are the one that's making decisions and really encouraging people to listen to what that instinct, that neurobiology, that connection between them and their baby is, because it tells you so much. It does. 
It does. That was beautiful. To yeah. That bottom line beautiful yeah no that's that's kind of that's kind of where I landed for my bottom line well I I cannot thank you enough for coming and chatting with me about your book I'm a huge fan I've my nan my former nanny is pregnant and I gifted it to her and there's a a practitioner that I work with at work that's pregnant and I'm like you have to go buy this book it's so good like this is the (laughs) one that I wanted um it's got just what you need so I really First, I appreciate you writing the book. And second, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us on the podcast. I think it was just a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Anna. I appreciate you and all the work you do to support those babies and those parents. And I appreciate you being excited about the book and helping me share it with other parents. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye. You keep saying it, Walt. No, podcast.